This morning, um, just to transition now, um, into uh, we're closing out a series this morning. We've been in a series called Big Questions, Big Answers. And we've been looking at several questions and answers um, that people sometimes ask regarding the Christian faith. And some of them have been the kind of things that skeptics use and throw out there, um, kind of as, sometimes as a defense mechanism or as a way to kind of push back against what we believe about the gospel. Things like, how do you trust, how do we know we can trust the Bible? How can there really be only one way to heaven? Um, why is there so much sin and suffering in the world if God is so loving and good? How can a loving God send people to hell? All those kind of uh, fun questions, right? Uh, we looked at those over the last four weeks. And this morning's question is really more um, more of a general question. It's not really one of those things people use to, to strike against the Christian faith. It's more of a curiosity question and one that has stimulated lots of books and writings over the years. And that is this, what is heaven going to be like? Is heaven a real place and what's it going to be like? We know, if you're a believer today, the Bible teaches that heaven is a real place uh, that believers go. And uh, we're going to talk about that. And what's it going to be like? Because, you know, there's a lot of um, writings and, and thinking and talks about heaven. A lot of misconceptions about heaven. Um, I remember a few years ago, several years ago now, I guess, five or six years ago, uh, I like country music, don't tell, don't tell anybody, but um, there was a guy named Kenny Chesney who had a song, and it said, everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. And uh, that is a lot of theological truth in that simple country lyric. And uh, everybody wants to go to heaven, nobody wants to go now. And honestly, uh, when you hear some people describe heaven, not many people would want to go there. Uh, we have this cartoon in our, hev- in our head of what heaven's like, of sitting alone on a cr- cloud playing a harp for all of eternity that does not sound like heaven to me um it's not as bad as hell uh but it's not heaven uh and it doesn't sound like a place better than this life uh, a land of isolation uh where you listen to a music that you would never choose to listen to uh on this earth probably unless you're into harp music and so and, and no offense to those people but here's my point there's a lot of misconceptions about heaven. We really don't know what it's going to be like. If we got real honest. Uh, but the Bible does tell us a lot about what it's going to be like. We're just sometimes a little bit ignorant of the truth culturally. But at the same time, there's also another kind of thing within the Christian world. There's kind of a movement where you see books that spring up of people who have uh, say they have died. They say they have went to heaven. They say they have come back. And you say, how do you feel about those books? Because they've written, they've made movies about those books. And I'll be honest with you, I have not read any of those books. I have read this one. Um, but I have not read any of those books. But if you want to know what I think about it, I'm very skeptical. Um, you know, the Apostle Paul says he knew a guy that was called up to the third heaven. And uh, we believe he was talking about himself there. And he saw things, and things were uttered to him that he could not repeat. That he was actually told he could not repeat what he saw. So I always find it interesting when three and four year old little boys um, are allowed to come back and talk about things um, that the Apostle Paul couldn't. And also there is zero death experiences in the Bible where someone dies and comes back and talks about heaven. Lazarus died. Lazarus, we have no recordings of all the things Lazarus saw. So I'm extremely skeptical of those things. I don't find it strange when we find out years later that there's all kinds of uh, mishappenings and things that were misconstrued and strange things like that. Because here's what I believe. I believe God has given us a very trustworthy revelation. Um, I believe he has given us the word of God from Genesis to Revelation. And I believe everything he wants us to know about heaven and about hell are contained in these 66 books. I really do believe that. And I believe anything that's not in here um, that God and His sovereignty chose not to put in here because He wrote the book. And so even if somebody was to go and have something like that, it's really not going to add to anything that we already have in this book. And if it does add to something in this book, well, there is something to be said about that at the end of Revelation about adding to the words of the prophecy of this book. So I'm very concerned 
when we throw those things out there. I think it's very subjective. But what bothers me the most is, is not so much that people say and do those things. I don't want to get on a rant about that. But it's, it's sometimes the attitude of us in the church when something like that comes along that we run to it and we clamor to it and we buy it up and we talk about it. And God's given us His Word, which is objective truth, not subjective truth. I mean, you can take it to the bank, what it says about heaven. And we don't run around talking about that. But when the latest new book comes out, and somebody claims to have seen heaven or been to heaven, it gets us all excited, like, well, maybe it's real. You know, like, you think, you know? Um, it is real. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to instill confidence in the Word of God that we can go to it for our answers about heaven and to understand that there are some things that, to be honest with you, God has not told us about heaven, and it's His prerogative to do so. But there is coming a day where we'll know everything we need to know about heaven. But there are some things that God absolutely does tell us about heaven or does allude to at times in scriptures about heaven. And so we're going to talk about that this morning. You know, a, a Lifeway study that was released last year revealed that 67% of Americans believe in heaven. It's a pretty good percent in a very secular culture. 61% believe in hell. And then even 37% of non-Christians believe in heaven. Think about that. 37% of the people out there um, that you know um, who do not know Christ actually believe in heaven, but according to the Bible, they're not going there apart from a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Interesting t- statistics about that. A lot of people who believe in heaven who, according to the Bible, that's not their destiny right now. So what does the Bible say about this place? Is it a real place? Is it a literal place? Well, first of all, before we read our text this morning, we're going to be in Revelation 21. I kind of want to give you some understanding because we're going to be reading about what we call the new heaven and the new earth. A future place that all believers are going to dwell. Heaven right now, the Bible teaches, when a born-again believer in Christ dies, he or she immediately... Not sometime later, not years later, immediately enters the presence of God. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, 2 Corinthians 5.8. Paul spoke of confidence in this. And so when a believer dies, their spirit goes immediately into God's presence. But the Bible teaches there's coming a day when everybody's bodies are going to be raised. You say, that sounds kind of weird and kind of supernatural. It is. And, you know, if we have a problem with the supernatural, we're going to have a real problem understanding the Bible because there's some supernatural stuff in there, right? And so the dead are going to be raised, the Bible says. And the Bible teaches that your spirit and your body are going to be reunited, but you're going to be given, if you're a believer in Christ, a glorified body that will not get sick. And we're going to talk about all that this morning, that will be perfectly healthy and can worship and serve God for all of eternity and that you will live in a new heaven and a new earth with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, this is going to happen at the end of the age, after Christ has returned, set up His kingdom, reigned on earth for a thousand years, and ultimately set up and sets up a new heaven and a new earth. Heaven, in a sense, is literally coming to earth. The current world, the Bible teaches, is going to be burned up. And we're going to get a new heaven and a new earth is going to, is going to come about. Now, Theologians disagree on how that's all going to go down, whether it's going to be completely disintegrated or somehow transformed in some way. What we mainly need to understand this morning and agree on is that there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth that we are going to live with Jesus forever on if you are a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, in this morning's passage, that's what we're going to kind of focus on. Because the the one thing we know about the current heaven is that you're present with God 
And so that means you're away from sin. And we, and we also, and it means to be present with the Lord is to be in the fullness of joy, Psalm 16 teaches us. In the Lord's presence, there is fullness of joy. So heaven right now is a pleasant, happy, joyful place with Jesus, enjoying His presence, absent from sin, all those sort of things, absent from suffering. But it is not the final place. It is a holding place in a sense. Not purgatory, but it is heaven. But it is not the final heaven. The final heaven is this new heaven and new earth that we're about to read about. Just like people right now who die apart from Christ, as we saw last week, go to hell, they're not in the final hell. The final hell is a place called the lake of fire. The Bible speaks of in Revelation 21.8 and other places in Revelation. So there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. There's going to be a final hell called the lake of fire according to the book of Revelation. So look with me at Revelation 21. John, is, we looked at the first few chapters of Revelation this summer. And so now we're kind of going to the back of the book. And we're going to see what John has to say here. The apostle John has to say about the new heaven and the new earth. So I'm going to read the first eight verses this morning in chapter 21. And we're going to pull some stuff from the other verses through all the way through chapter 22, verse 5 this morning. So look, at me, uh, look with me with the first eight verses. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold! The dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who comforts will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is... The second death. And then he goes on, starting in verse 9, and goes all the way through 22.5, going on into more detail about this new heaven and this new earth. And so, in verse 9, he begins describing it, and in particularly this new Jerusalem that he alludes to in the first couple of verses here, this holy city. And some actually believe that this is like the capital city of the new heaven and the new earth. So you've got a new heaven and a new earth, and you've got this capital city in a sense, uh, the new Jerusalem. Um, and some even believe, uh, John MacArthur is one who points to that he believes that the current heaven is contained in that heaven since it comes down from heaven. I, I would understand all that, uh, but there's all kinds of theories out there, a lot of things that we don't fully know. Um, but, um, but we do know exactly where we're ultimately headed and what the final destination is for the believer in Christ. Now, what do we know about heaven? The first thing in, in this new heaven and this new earth that he reveals to us, first of all, we want you to see that it's a real place. All right, It's not a state of mind. He's speaking in very concrete terms. This is a city that has people there. There are things that are happening. This is not simply some state of mind, some nirvana. This is a real place, a tangible place. It's a literal place. And this is what Jesus said that he was preparing for believers. In John 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. 
If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. So many times, people paint a picture of heaven that's not real. And we're going to talk about some of those. But there's a lot of things we don't know, but this we do know. It's a place. It's a literal place, and it's not just a figurative place. Notice in verse 2, he refers to this new Jerusalem as the holy city. A real city. Not a cloud. Not a place where you play harp music forever by yourself and float on a cloud forever. When you think of a city, what do you think about? What's he alluding to here when he says this about it being a city? He's alluding to diversity. He's alluding to creativity, liveliness. Life happens in cities. Things happen in cities. Cities are, are, are big and cities are lively. Activity is going on in cities. People live in close proximity in cities. There's a lot of things about cities. A lot of community taking place in city, in the city. A lot of things sometimes that intimidate people about the city. But those things will be absent in heaven. You know, Revelation 7, 9 through 10 speaks to the diversity of heaven. And cities are very diverse places. There's people from all kinds of cultures, all kinds of races, all, people from all over the globe. Cities are like melting pots. And in a sense, heaven is going to be one big melting pot, but everybody will have at least one thing in common, and that is faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. It would be a bunch of people from all over the world, all sorts of different races, all sorts of different backgrounds, all sorts of different cultures, but they will have Jesus Christ in common. In Revelation 7, 9 through 10, This is what John says. He says, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. He says, every nation, all tribes, all peoples, all languages. That means this. When Jesus told the church, go into all the world and make disciples, right? Go into every nation and make disciples. The Bible tells us in Revelation chapter 7, the church will succeed. Jesus said it. He said, the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. The gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will, in fact, go to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. Somebody, at least one person, somebody will repent and believe Jesus. I'm telling you, that's why we can go to with confidence all over the world with the gospel. God is going to call people out and believe. There is no other religion out there as culturally diverse as Christianity. It's in the very DNA of it because it is for the Jew and for the Gentile. It is, it is true. And it calls people out of every culture to come and to believe on the Lord Jesus. And and ultimately, all these believers will be gathered in this new city, in this new place, this literal place, this diverse city called heaven. In verses 23 through 27 of chapter 21, down a little bit from where we read this morning, John says, The city has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light, that the lamp is the Lamb, It says its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there and nothing unclean will ever enter it. In other words, it's going to be everything a city should be. It's going to be a safe city, right? He he says the gates will never be shut. There's no reason to to shut the gates. The gates are not there to keep bad people out. The gates are there simply for decoration. The walls that are in heaven are there for decoration. It's not for protection. There's nothing to protect you from. God's a creative God. 
It's a beautiful place, the Bible tells us. It says, it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. He says he saw this new place coming down. He said it was, he's trying to find a way to, in human language, to convey these heavenly terms. One commentator said, it's almost as you can see John struggling to figure out a way to describe the beauty and the uniqueness of the place he sees. He says it's prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Because, think about it. Brides on wedding days, I mean, that, I mean, the money that sometimes is spent, right, on the hair, the money that is spent sometimes on the dress and on the place and on getting everything just right and the professional makeup and all these sort of things. Not all the time, but sometimes, I mean, you hear thousands and thousands of dollars spent on this, right? Because the bride wants to just be, every, that's her day, right? And we know, men, that they get more and more beautiful every day after that, right? That's not the, that's not the most beautiful. They get more and more beautiful every day after that's what you Make sure you say that when you... Amen. Exactly. Okay, I was looking for the amen. Finally got it. And that's true. But here's my point. My point is, John's sitting there thinking, he's going, okay, how, how can I get them to understand what God has prepared for his people? And this goes across every culture. And this goes across every language. We get it when he says, like a bride prepared for her husband to meet her husband on her wedding. We get what he means when he says that. We, we get the, the time that goes into that. We get the big deal of that. We get the celebration of that, the pomp and circumstance of that. He says, I, I want you to know that, that's what this is like. God has spared no expense. God has spared no detail. This is a beautiful place. He goes into detail about that in verses 9 through 21. Having the glory of God, he says in verse 11, its radiance is like a most rare jewel. He goes through all these jewels and explains all this beauty. He talks about the high wall that I mentioned for decoration in verse 12. In verse 21 of chapter, uh, uh, in verse 21 of chapter 21, he says the 12 gates were 12 pearls. Each of the gates are made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. So there's the, 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 the golden streets that, that you've been uh, hearing about. Now some say this language is more symbolic than literal. But there's no reason to believe that it can't be literal. And the main idea here is that John is trying to find a way in human terms to communicate beauty. His point is this is a beautiful place. This is an extravagant place. This is an incredible place. This is a place that it's really hard to put in terms what it's going to be like. It's a real place. Now there's much we don't know about heaven. But the Word of God, God assures us that it's literal, that it's beautiful, that it's active, that it's not some boring place, that it's a lively city, and it's better than you can possibly imagine. Ultimately, we know that it's perfect in beauty and goodness because it's from God. He says it comes down out of heaven from God. It's a real place where we will be with a real God. And that comes to the second thing about heaven I want you to see. It's a place where we will have perfect fellowship with God. Look at what he says there, back up in the first few verses there of chapter 21 that we read. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Heaven is a place where God's people live in perfect fellowship and harmony unhindered with him. Wayne Grudem in his systematic theology defines heaven this way. Heaven is the place where God most fully makes himself, makes known his presence to bless it's the place, because God's everywhere, right? But God's really present in heaven. He's everywhere, but there's a sense in which God manifests His presence in unusual ways to bless. And heaven is the place where He most fully does that. And so, there's the heaven now where God is doing that. And then there's this new heaven and this new earth where God is going to do that. And that's why we understand hell to be such a hard place, because it's the place where God refuses to make His presence known to bless. 
It's the place that we talked about last week of wrath. But heaven is extreme opposite of that. It's the place where God makes his presence known to bless. It's where he fellowships with his people unhindered. There's nothing to prevent or to halt the fellowship between God and man. It says in chapter 21, in verses 22 through 27, he talks about that there's not a temple there. That the temple is the Lord God Almighty. It has no need for sun or moon, for the glory of God gives it light. The lamp is the Lamb. He says in chapter 22, verse 5, they will see His face. His point is, the presence of God permeates this place. The defining characteristic of heaven is God. The the defining thing about heaven is that God is there. You cannot escape Him. He is there in an incredible way beyond all that you could possibly think or imagine. He will captivate and rivet every part of your soul and mind and that you will be fully aware and in the presence of God forever. He calls it this this new city. He calls it the new Jerusalem, which would have, for for Jewish readers, would have just contained all kinds of imagery and, and stuff from the Old Testament. But then he says there's no temple there. And if you're a Jew and you think about Jerusalem, you've got, you've got to be a temple. The temple's like the centerpiece. And he says, but there's no temple that's going to be there. Why is there no temple in the new Jerusalem? Because he says, God is the temple. He says, you don't need to go to a temple. God, God is there in such a manifest, present way. And we know there's, we don't need a temple now because what? He's the Lord Jesus came, the the real temple of God came, the the person of God himself, the Lord Jesus Christ came and laid down his life so that he could transform us into temples of the Holy Spirit. And he says, when you get to heaven, you're going to be in the manifest presence of God. No need for a temple or anything like that for all of eternity. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Heaven is a God-centered Jesus said, I'm going to prepare a place for you that you may come and be with me. For a disciple of Jesus, when we read that, and we go, oh, Jesus is going to prepare a place for you. There are many rooms, you know, in my Father's house. The thing that should captivate, the thing that should make your heart skip a beat is when Jesus gets to the end and he says, so that you can be with me. So that you can be with me. Because heaven wouldn't be heaven if God wasn't there. It would be hell. A pretty hell. Heaven is heaven because God's there. Heaven is heaven because Jesus is there. Heaven is heaven because of the manifest presence of God. You know, a couple of years ago, almost three years ago ago now, uh, I guess two, two and a half years ago, Christy and I had the opportunity. We got some tickets and we went over to the uh, Orlando, see the Orlando Magic play at the Amway. I'd never been to the Amway. And so we get there, and, and, and the Magic are getting better, but they were really bad a couple of years ago. And uh, they're, they're working on it, right? We're trying to get better with the draft and all that kind of stuff. So we go, and I think it was the Magic and the 76ers, two of the worst teams at the time in the league. But it was, I was so impressed with the Amway. And people talk about it's one of the nicer stadiums, nicer arenas out there. And I mean, I mean I'm talking about, like, you can get prime rib when you watch a basketball game. They're over there shaving off, like, prime rib. And the, I mean, just all this incredible stuff. And it's, it's a beautiful place, really, in these huge sky boxes. And, I mean, it's an incredible place to go watch a sporting event. And it's an incredible place to go watch a concert. And so huge concerts come through Orlando. And where do they go? They go to the Amway. And it's a great place to go do that. But what you would never, you know, what you would never do is just go hang out at the Amway when nothing's going on. 
just a big, empty, beautiful arena with no Orlando Magic play. Now, you want to be at the Amway in Game 7 of the NBA Finals, right? When You, you want to go back like 15, 20 years when like Shaquille O'Neal's there and he's like ripping the rim out of the basketball goal, right? You want to go and you want to see Game 7 NBA Finals championships, people yelling and screaming. You want to be packed in there for that. You want to go and your favorite artist be there and doing their concert and everybody's gathered and everybody's having a great time. You don't want to go on, you know, 3 a.m. on Tuesday by yourself and walk away. That's creepy. You would be creeped out. It's a big place. It's dark. Nobody wants to go there. Just The Amway is not the Amway unless something is there that makes the Amway center the Amway center. The right artist, the right team. That's what you go to the Amway for. And in the same way, heaven, if you remove God from heaven, it's just a big, pretty, empty place. Heaven is heaven because God is there and God gives it life. And you're in the presence of God. And it would be no more pleasurable to walk around heaven for all of eternity by yourself without God than it would be to walk around in an Amway center. God is there. God's people are there. And we are in His presence together for all of eternity. And that's what makes heaven heaven. And all the other stuff is great. And it's incredible. And it's wonderful. And it's icing on the cake. It's not the cake. It's just the cherry on top. What makes heaven heaven is that God is there. Don't be fooled into thinking. You know, some people claim to be Christian but have no desire for God. No desire to spend time in God's presence. No desire to seek after God. The idea of being in God's presence is not at all engaging to them. It's not at all even really sound interesting to them. And they claim to be Christian. And make no mistake, people that spend an eternity, excuse me, a lifetime running from God and refusing to repent and come to God do not spend eternity with God. Make no mistake about that. You know you're going to spend eternity in God's presence one day because of the hunger and thirst you have for God now. Heaven is heaven because God's there and God's people want God. They want God. Heaven is also a place, thirdly, it's a real place. It's a place where you spend eternity with God and it's a place without sin and all of its effects. He says, the sea will be no more. You know, theologians, all kinds of things. What is the sea? What is the sea? What is the sea? Well, when you, when you look at Revelation, you go back to Revelation 13, the beast comes from the sea. The sea, I believe, is symbolic for evil and chaos. I think what he's saying is evil will be no more. There is no place for evil to even come from anymore. You know, so, sometimes people say, well, how do you know this won't all happen again and we won't fall again and this won't happen again? Because the, I believe because the sea will be no more. The, there will be no place for evil to even come from. The, the beast and the false prophet, they're in the lake of fire. <laughs> Satan's in the lake of fire. Every unbeliever is in the lake of fire. And heaven is filled with people that have, they're not just people, they're people that have been transformed and glorified and have become people now who know as they've been known, as the Bible says. We've been transformed into a people that are without sin. 
He says in verse 4, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. He said, this belongs to the former things, the old way of life that was under the curse. He says, and he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. This is a new place. And in this new place, there's no sin. There's, so there's four. There's no suffering. There's no shame. There's no pain. There's no reason to cry. There's no reason to suffer. None of that's there. All that's banished from this place. The former things have passed away. And in God's presence, as we said, Psalm 1611, there's fullness of joy. So there's no place for sin. There's no place for crying. And there's no place for sad tears. The Bible tells the story, its story this way. God creates a perfect world and says what? It's good. You see that throughout the Revelation account. He creates Adam and Eve and he says it's very good. And then we see Adam and Eve what? Choosing to rebel against God, sinning, and sin comes into humanity and begins to wreak havoc. Sin brings death and all the things like mourning and crying and pain into the world that we read about there in Revelation 4, 21.4. Because it brings the curse. So we're all under this curse for our sin. And all of us are sinners by nature and sinners by choice. And ultimately, Adam and Eve had to be driven out of the garden, both for their protection and for their punishment. And ever since then, mankind has been sinners by nature, sinners by choice, living east of Eden, bent toward sin. Think about it this way. Adam and Eve's first child. Think about it. Perfect people are made, right? They're sinless. They, they walk in the cool of the day in the garden. With God. God comes walking through the garden in the cool of the day. He, he, they have perfect, unending fellowship with God. But then they choose to shake their fist at God and rebel against God and do what He told them not to do. And sin enters the world. And then they have their first child. And he's a murderer. The first person ever born the old-fashioned way. All right? God not forming them out of dust. Being born of woman, alright? Being born through procreation is Cain. And when he gets old enough, he grows up and he has a brother named Abel and he murders him. That's the first person that's born from Adam and Eve's union. The Bible wants us to see very early in the storyline that this world is jacked up and we're jacked up and we're bent and we're broken and we're prone towards sin. And you may not have ever murdered anybody, but you probably hated them. And you've probably done other things. I know you have. We all have. Because we're sinners. And so we live in this broken world now. And we have hurricanes and we have tornadoes and we have forest fires and we have just incredible... Because the whole earth is under this curse. Listen to what Romans 8 says in verses 18 through 20. Paul writes this, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That's a good word right now. He says, no matter what you suffer in this life, it's not even worth comparing with how good it's going to be in the next. He says in verse 19, for the creation waits for with eager longing for the revealing of the Son of God. Sons of God. He's saying creation itself is waiting and longing for what's going to happen when God's children are transformed and glorified in what we're talking about with this new heaven and this new earth. In verse 20 says, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. See, it's in bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. See, so we're going to be set free, but 
It's going to be set free. And then he says in verse 22, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And so you see this, the groans of Romans 8. Believers are groaning for our glorified bodies and our glorified state with God. And the whole earth is groaning for it. The creation itself groans due to the fall. Things are not as they should be. But God promised Eve in Genesis 3.15 that one of her offspring would crush the head of the serpent. In other words, he would undo, he would crush the head of the serpent. He would undo the curse. He would break the curse. And that's Jesus, right? He's the offspring because not only did they have Cain and Abel, but as we saw when we went through Genesis together last year, they had a son named Seth. And the Bible tells us when Seth comes on the scene, people begin to call upon the name of the Lord. And through Seth's line, you get Noah. And through Noah's line, you get Abraham. And through Abraham's line, you get David. And through David's line, you get Jesus. Who has come to break the curse. Who goes and who pays for all of our sin. Who dies in our place on the cross. Bearing our punishment. Bearing God's wrath. Who is risen from the dead. And so the the storyline of the Bible is now one of resurrection. And so it shouldn't shock us that God's also going to create a new heaven and a new earth. He's going to make us new. He's making us new, but he's going to make it new as well. And this is heaven. This is the destiny of the believer. God is going to bring about this new heaven and new earth where sin and its effects are banished forever. Where the curse is gone. See, death is an abnormal thing. We, we've made it so... We've, it's, oh, it's very normal for us now. But there's a part of you when you're at a funeral or you lose a loved one, you know it's, it's abnormal. It doesn't feel right. It's not supposed to feel right. It's an abnormal thing. Cancer is an abnormal thing. That is not the way God created this world. This world is broken. Pain is abnormal. These things, suffering is, is abnormal. In this life, it's normal. But it's, it's not normal in the sense of what God has ultimately saved us and is calling us for and is transforming, going to ultimately transform everything into. Those are very abnormal things. We're not created to experience pain and suffering and sin and death. And in the new heaven and new earth, there will be no sickness and there will be no cancer. There will be no heart disease. There will be no HIV or AIDS. And there will be no broken bones and no arthritis. And there will be no broken hearts and no emotionally, emotional scars. And there will be no physical or emotional abuse and no scandals or financial stresses or poverties or broken families. There will be no famines, no orphans and no one that's abandoned and left by themselves because he says the former things will pass away. And there will be no more. Some of you are going to have to get new jobs in heaven. There are going to be no doctors in heaven. Not that doctors don't go to heaven. <laughs> but there's not going to be no doctors in heaven because there are going to be no sick people in heaven. You're, going to, you're not going to need no checkup. You're not going to have no lawyers in heaven. And I could make a lawyer joke right there, but I'm not. There's not going to be any lawyer jokes in heaven. Lawyers in heaven because there's not going to be any disagreements. There's not going to be any fighting. There's not going to be any reason to sue each other. There's not going to be any laws broken. There's not going to be any police officers in heaven. Have to get a new job. No firemen. A lot of the things that we need, army, a lot of things we need and respect now, positions that we respect and need now, right, and thank God for, they're no longer needed. We're going to need a new career path. God is making all things new. And God is making you new. It's for believers. This last thing, this heaven is for believers. And it's for believers to live in worship, community, and service forever. 
Look at what he says. He says, I'll, they'll be my people. God himself will be with them. They, they're thirsty. I will give from the spring of the water of life, he says in verse 6. Verse 7, he says, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. It, it, it's a place for believers to spend eternity with God. Heaven's not for everybody. It's for the people of God. And he refers to the people of God in chapter 21, verse 6, as the thirsty. It's those, it's those that he gives of the water of life without payment. In chapter 22, verse 1, he goes into more terminology on this water of life. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne and of God, of the Lamb. It is from the throne of God, the throne of the Lamb, that this stream of life flows from. It's a picture of life and abundance emanating from the throne of God. Blessedness. And it comes from God because only God has the authority to give it. So it flows from His throne and He gives it to show, He gives it to those who long for God, for the thirsty. Jesus said, if you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you will be have you heard this before? The Beatitudes are the attitudes of the believer. Believers are those who hunger and thirst for God. And they will be filled. They hunger and thirst for righteousness. And they will be filled. He gives it to those who have become sick and tired of their sin and who have come to Jesus, the Lamb, realizing that only Jesus can satisfy the deepest longings and thirst of their heart. See, in this life, God, God gives believers the Holy Spirit like a foretaste. The Bible actually says He's our down payment. Of our inheritance. And so we have joy in the midst of incredible difficulties sometimes and pain, and He comforts us and all that, but this is a foretaste. It's, it's a foretaste of what heaven's going to be like. He refers to the believers as conquerors. It is believers who, by the power of the Holy Spirit in this life, walk in victory over the world, the flesh, and the devil, not in perfection, but in victory. Believers are more than conquerors through Christ who loved us, the Bible tells us in Corinthians. So he calls believers the thirsty and he calls them the conquerors. And it's the thirsty conquerors who will spend eternity with God in heaven. And then he says in verse 28, the cowardly, the context, the, the, the people who buy into the world system and go the world's ways and refuse to repent and believe the gospel but align themselves with the world system and in, in Revelation, the beast. The cowardly, the faithless, those that refuse to believe, the detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. This is not a comprehensive list of the people that are going to be in hell. It's an example of the people that are in the lake of fire. It's those who continue in their sin that refuse to repent, that refuse to truly believe the gospel, that never have life changed, that continue down the same unabated path of misery and sin. Only the conquerors, only the thirsty will be in heaven. See, if you choose to remain in your sin, you will not have God. And if you will not have God, you will not have heaven. Well, what are believers going to do for eternity in this place? Well, I believe we're going to worship. In Revelation 22, 3, he says his servants will worship him. We're going to worship for all of eternity, right? And you're like, ugh, that's a red flag. Major red flag in your life. If that sounds miserable to you. I'm serious. He, he says we're going to worship him, right? We're going to worship him for all of eternity. But that doesn't mean, 
Heaven is not, I don't believe, one super long church service where you sit and listen to music for eternity and listen to preaching for eternity. And, you know, and just that it's a, it, it's, there's life, but it all, it's worship. All of life is worship. All of life is supposed to be worship. We fail at that miserably, the Bible teaches us. But all of life is supposed to be worship. Not just Sunday morning at 1045. But in heaven, man, all of their life will be worship. Unhindered worship of God. We're also going to live in community together. He refers to this new Jerusalem, as we mentioned, as a city. He says we're going to be his people. He speaks in plural terms. The Bible speaks that there's going to be a marriage supper of the Lamb where we're all going to gather. He, he, he talks about this in terms of fellowship, in terms of community. Heaven is a communal place. It is a place where we are together with other believers. You're not on a cloud alone living in isolation. It's a community of believers. It is life as it's intended to be. He said, we're going to know people in heaven. Are we going to have relationships in heaven? They're going to be way better than the relationships in this life. Sometimes when people hear that Jesus taught that you're not going to have spouses in heaven, that we're not going to be married in heaven, they think, oh, if you had a great, have a great marriage. Now, some people are like high-fiving over that, and that's not good. But if you're like, but if you have a great marriage, right? You're like, oh, man. All that means is whatever we have in heaven is way better. That relationship is a shadow. It's a shadow of better things God has prepared. The relationships in heaven are going to be incredible. We don't fully understand them, but we're going to be in perfect community and fellowship with one another. It's not going to be tainted or clouded by sin. People say, well, we know other people in heaven. Well, I know my loved ones who've gone to be with Christ. Well, well, I know the Apostle Paul when I see him. I believe you will. The Bible gives us every reason to believe that. When they see Jesus on the transfigured, on the mountain of transfiguration and and they say, look, it's Elijah and they're Moses. How do they know it's Elijah and Moses? You ever thought about that? They didn't have pictures. Those guys lived a long time before they did. It doesn't tell us that they told them. It says they looked at them and they knew. I believe it's possible that you're just going to be able to know who people are. People that maybe you never even met. I don't know. It's a different place. It's a different world. But I do absolutely believe you're going to know people. Is it... As Randy Alcorn says, is it very comforting when Paul tells the Thessalonians to comfort yourself with these words, that, the, that the, those who have died in Christ, that they're going to be raised first? Is it very comforting if you're not even going to know who they are when you get there anyway? No. Yeah, you're going to know who these people are. And the relationships with them are going to be even better than they were in this life. We're going to live in perfect community with one another. And we're going to serve he calls us servants in verse 23. Our, my servants will worship Him. And in verses 4 and 5, He says, He talks about that we will reign forever and ever. Reign. That means responsibility. I don't know what all that means, but it means responsibility. It means measures of authority. We don't, we, there's a lot of things we don't fully know, but we do know that heaven is, I believe, a place of service and responsibility and all those things. And you're like, oh man, it's not a long nap. It's not. You're not going to sit in a hammock for all of eternity. Right? We're going to have things to do, but all the stuff that makes work sometimes painful now will be gone. And you will fully enjoy everything you do for all of eternity. It's life as it should be. It is life. Sometimes we, we think it's like this eternal coma where you hear heart music. It is not. It is life. There is life in heaven. There is community in heaven. There is service in heaven. And the local church body should be a model and a foretaste of heaven. Because we're a place of worship, and we're a place of community, and we're a place of service. And so we should give people a taste of heaven. And when we don't, we're not doing it right. 
And we fall far short. Far short. We'll never be able to get all that right. But we, we're to point people, point people to what the community of heaven is going to be like. So how am I going to live? How are we supposed to live in light of this heaven? We need to live in light of eternity. See, if you don't know Christ, you need to first of all realize that eternity is a long time. And there are two possible destinations. And one is heaven and one is hell. And all sinners, and that's all of us, go to be in the lake of fire and ultimately go to suffer for eternity in hell unless, except for Jesus. We've got to be covered by the blood of Jesus. And so if you don't know Christ today, if you'll repent and believe the gospel today, you can be saved and you can spend eternity with God in heaven one day. If you're a believer this morning, you need to understand, we need to realize, and we need to constantly remind ourselves that life is short and eternity is long, and we need to leverage our life in light of eternity. Our hope is not in this world. And that should be reflected in how we spend and how we invest our lives. We need to leverage this life for the next. We need to worship. We need to live in community. We need to serve. We need to live on mission. Leveraging our life. Because what's done in this life matters for eternity. Remember the old line from Gladiator? Remember that movie? Won Oscars and all that kind of stuff. What you do in this life echoes for eternity. And it's true. Sometimes true things are said in movies. Sometimes a lot of false things. But that's a true one. It does echo in eternity. What is done in this life? It's a place of reward. There are rewards in heaven. How you live in this life matters. It matters. So leverage your time here to reflect that you're living for eternity. Invest time with God's people. Invest time in God's word. Invest time advancing the gospel. Pour yourself into your church and into your family and those around you that need the gospel because eternity demands it. Leverage your talents to reflect that we know God gave them to us in this life to make an eternal impact. Not to serve myself, but to serve others. And leverage your treasures in this life to show that earthly treasures cannot compare with heavy ones. Jesus said in Matthew six nineteen through twenty one, "Do not lay up treasures for do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also." What does your bank account say of your view of eternity? What does your time log say? Does it reflect the love for Christ and for His church and for His mission? Heaven's a real place. It's a place of reward. It's a place where Jesus said you can lay up treasure. You can lay up treasure. And eternity is a much better investment than the brief vapor Sometimes people say, well, you talk about heaven too much, people won't be any earthly good. I don't believe that. I believe usually we're no earthly good because we don't think and live for heaven. Eternity should be on our hearts and minds at all times. When we go to work, when we're engaging with our neighbor, when we're stewarding our resources, we should be thinking about forever and not just the neighbor. Yeah, you've got to live and you've got to do life, but you've got to think about eternity or we're doing it wrong because we're citizens of another place. 